Amos chapter 7, verses uh, 7 through 17. Andy texted me this week to find out if I was going to speak on um, anywhere in Matthew, uh, because I did a few weeks ago, and he's continuing that series. I said, no, I thought I'd do something uplifting like a minor prophet would be a you know, way to really encourage people. So that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, Amos 7, 7 uh, through 17, this is, uh, this is Amos speaking. He says, this is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among the people of Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, uh, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is rising a cons- raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore, Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in this city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. If you look in the bottom right-hand corner, if you've got the sermon notes, you actually see a picture of a plumb bob. A plumb bob is a a heavy object, uh, I think lead primarily, with a point at the end. And uh, carpenters and builders will tie it to a piece of string, and they will hold it up, and gravity will hold it perfectly down. Now, today, we use things like levels or laser levels to make sure that something is level, something is straight, the bubble's in the middle. A lot of you guys know how to do that. Your iPhone has a level in it. It actually works pretty good uh, in a pinch. Someone can show you later how to do that if you didn't know that. The plumb bob can be used a great thing for when you're setting a wall or setting a post to know if you are straight up and down, because when you hold it at the top, wherever that dot hits in the bottom, that's going to be the center of the item at the top. So you set that down and and you go that route. Bricklayers will use a plumb bob. They'll hold it up again. They'll tie it off high, maybe a couple inches away from the wall that they're going to build, and they start laying their first course of bricks. And they'll measure out two inches away from that course. And they'll go to the second course and the third course and the fourth course. And every course they do, should be the same two inches away from that string. What if the next course is two and a quarter inches away? A quarter inch off. What if the next course is is two and a half inches away? Now you're half inch off. And so on, and so on, and so on. And you can always tell if a guy is only checking that uh, plumb line every couple of courses because the first one and the fifth one might be right, but second, third, and fourth might do a little bit of this. And if you look down the side of the wall, you can tell it, and you'll know in a heartbeat that the guy wasn't paying attention to whether or not something was plumb. And you say, well, how, how couldn't he just eyeball something like that? Well, it's because when things get off, they only get off a little bit. And if you're doing something, say, 
40 feet long and an eighth of an inch off here over the course of a foot becomes very wide when you get to the other side. And so you have to really take measure and always be aware of how close you are to being plumb, to being straight. Now what does that have to do with everything today? Well, the book of Amos is about a man, Amos, who was, I called him a, a country mouse. Amos was living in the southern tribe, in the, the, the tribe that's aligned with the house of David, and he was minding his own business. He was a shepherd. Uh, he also took care of sycamore and fig trees. He was a farmer. He just doing the good life. And God calls him out and says, Amos, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave the farm for a period of time. And I want you to go to the northern kingdom. No, I don't want you to visit the farms in the northern kingdom. I want you to go through its cities. And I want you to walk amongst the people. And I want you to see what you see. And then you're going to prophesy for me. You are going to bring a message and a word from God from this farmer in the south to the big city in the north. And so that's what Amos does. And today, God gives Amos a prophecy where God stands on a very true and straight wall and holds the plumb line alongside it to show Amos a good and perfect line. That's what a good uh, master does for the apprentice, right? He shows him what, a good, what, what it's supposed to look like. And so he sees that and it's perfectly straight. I'm sure if we held a plumb line against this wall, this would be perfectly straight, right? Maybe, sort of. But God's was perfectly straight. There wasn't, there wasn't a millimeter in between it. And so he says, what do you see? And Amos says, that's clearly a good plumb line. And then God says, I'm holding the plumb line against the people in the northern kingdom. What do you see? And Amos says, well, some are going this way, and some are going this way, and some are going this way, and not a single one of them is straight. You see, as you're building a wall, as I said, a little bit of a, a movement early on, makes a bigger movement as it gets taller. And pretty soon that wall is no good to be built on anymore. And in fact, you'll see that in older homes when they uh, come to, someone says, I've got a one-story home, I want to build a two-story home. And so they bring the architect out, he does the drawings, does everything else, they bring the surveyor out, and the surveyor says, no way, you put a second story on this, and that whole place is just going to slide right out because all the walls are doing this or some of them are doing that. And so God says, if you look at the wall that I built when I started this wonderful kingdom of God, it's straight. But if you look at the people of God, I've set a plumb line along them, and I will spare them no longer. This leaves a few questions. First, how could a kingdom built by the Lord be out of plumb? How could it get out of alignment with his will? And second, what could Amos and God have seen that warrants the destruction of the northern kingdom? Well, I think we need to look at a little bit of a history uh, of God's people as a whole. You know, once God's people completely settled into the promised land, you know, Egypt is in the history books, and they're all coming together, there were 12 different tribes who ended up there. And God said, all of the nations around you have kings, you have a king too. I am your king. You don't have an earthly king, I am your king. And so they settled in, and they started really in the promised land, showing what life would be like if an entire nation truly lived under God with nobody else in the way. When they had problems that they needed to deal with in this life, God would raise up a judge, and the judge would help them uh, figure out judgment, what the right thing was to do. But eventually, they, uh, people said, 
We don't look as good as the other ki kingdoms. All these other countries, they've got kings. They've got leaders. They've got a guy they can look to. And their friends are saying, you rise up a judge when you have problems. That takes too long. We just go to the king. He figures it out for us, tells us what to do and go on to life. It's heavenly. And God says, you don't want a king. They say, we, we absolutely have got to have one on this earth. So what does God do? He gives them exactly what they asked for. Whenever you can say, God gave me exactly what I asked for, if my life experience has shown me you're in real trouble. So God gives them the king they want, and it lasts for about two generations. You've got David, you've got his son Solomon. And immediately after Solomon dies, the whole thing falls apart. And you end up with two tribes in the south that are still following David's line, and 10 other tribes who said, oh, the new king, he raises taxes too much, he's too hard to follow, we're going to split up. So they have basically a civil war. Only in this civil war, they stay apart. And they put a gentleman in place by the name of Jeroboam, and he becomes the first king of the northern tribe. And for hundreds of years, they would fight back and forth between these two territories because in the south, they were trying to reunite back with the northern, northern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, where Israel was, they continued to want to have their, uh, their independence. Well, eventually, many, many, many kings later, They've settled on the fact that they're not going to reunite. It's not, not going to happen. And so they're going to stay separate. So now you still have the northern kingdom, which we're talking about today, and the southern kingdom, the, the line of David. Only God's place of worship was in Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? Southern kingdom. You need a passport to go to church. And what's more is Jer there's a new king now, Jeroboam II. This is many, many years later. He starts thinking... If these people keep going down to the southern kingdom and they go down there and worship, some of them might not be coming home. And they may forget how great life is in the northern kingdom, so we need to give them less reasons to go. So he builds two new houses of worship. God didn't tell him to do this. He just decided he needed two new churches. He built one in Bethel, one in Dan, and he had golden calves erected in front of those things, basically to say, and he went to the people and he said, you know, it's just too hard to travel to Jerusalem all the time. That's, that's too much work. I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and everybody just worship at these places in our own kingdom with our own kind. Everybody will feel much more comfortable doing that. Isn't that right? It's just like-minded people getting together for the right reasons. And he even says, it's just too much work for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you from the land of Egypt. They said, you're still worshiping Yahweh. You're just doing it through these golden calves. It's like they didn't read their history books, you know. So for many years, they, were, they, they did this, and they basically focused on, uh, now we're up to Jeroboam II, and Jeroboam II, leader of the northern kingdom, his leadership was a huge success. Their neighboring countries were so weak, northern kingdom never came under attack. The king built such a large military of such might, they were the envy of all nations, and they had all of this great economic prosperity. They had a wonderful trade piece going on and everything. And so when Jeroboam II would go out for a talk, all he'd hear is, four more years, four more years. They loved him. They were the greatest things. Everything about their life was just great. I, they knew they were making those people in the South jealous. You guys should have come with us. We got the right kingdom. You got the wrong one. We are all set. Economic prosperity abounded and Jeroboam II, as archaeologists have dug that area up, they realized that he reigned for 40 years, 41 years, longest reign of the entire northern kingdom. 
And they also realized that when they talk about economic prosperity, the economy was never as good as it was with Jeroboam II. He was, he was a great leader. So here comes Amos, country mouse, simple means, coming to the big city, and he's expecting to see all this great, wonderful things, all of these awesome events going on, probably streets paved with gold, you know, all the wonderful things you're going to hear about. And as he walks around, he starts to realize that there's a seedy underbelly, we'll say, to living in the northern kingdom. It's not the picturesque Mayberry he may have thought it would be. Now, as we go through Amos, and if you were to read the whole book, you would see uh, mentions of moral sins, uh, sexual immorality, people drinking too much, some of the problems like that. But that isn't the problem that causes God to speak a word against the people in the north. The problem that causes God to speak against the people of north is that while you had this group up here who was living large, you had these people down here who had nothing. And what's more, the people who had nothing were getting beat on all of the time by the people who had something. And so God was angry because there was this huge gulf between those who had and those who didn't. Uh, Amos 2 says, For three transgression of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, all the poor have left is dirt, and they want that too. Amos said, look at the rich women. You know, today they'd be called the real housewives of Samaria. <laughs> Amos in, uh, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, called them fatted cows. He said, hear the words, you, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. You see, throughout Amos, God was condemning what we call the 24 by 7 economy and condemned how they manipulated the markets for the, of the wealthy for their own gain. In Amos 8, he says, Hear this, who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making epa small and shekel large, falsifying the scales of deceit? Basically, he was saying, Every opportunity you had to get the upper hand on your brother or sister in the Lord, you took it. And every opportunity you had to get one more ahead of that, you took it. And so you go to your buddy and you say, man, I, my, my farm, I'm out of land. I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, that guy to the south of you, just sue him. He's like, I can't sue him. That's his land. What, what am I going to do about that land? He says, no, sue him and tie it up in a frivolous lawsuit in court because you've got a lot of money and he doesn't have any money. And if you sue him long enough, even if he wins the case, it doesn't matter because he can't afford the farm anyhow, then you can buy it from him for pennies on the dollar. And the guy would say, well, is that right? And his buddy would say, well, I don't know if it's right, but it sure is legal. And so you had this country where if you had, you thought everything was great. But if you didn't, you had a much different picture of the northern kingdom. And you have to remember that God, as he united these 12 tribes, this was to be the nation that people would be jealous of. This was the nation that would live a life of love and compassion and care for one another. I don't know that I would go so far as some have done to say that there wouldn't be any poor. You know, Jesus says many years later, you'll always have the poor among you. But certainly this would be a nation where people cared for the poor because that was my brother in the Lord. This would be a nation where people went out of their way to make sure that those who didn't have had something. 
and they just weren't seeing that. And so the greatest sin that God has seen in that entire nation is a heart that didn't love. And this is a problem that comes throughout all throughout history, if you think about it. Even in the church, we can talk about 21st century issues, things of that nature. You go all the way from Amos all the way to Revelation. Remember the letter to the church at Ephesus? What does God hold against the church at Ephesus? Forgotten your first love. You've forgotten where you came from. You started to the point, you started at a point of loving church. I still remember Vince, sometime I told Andy we should do a series not on the book of Ephesians, but on the church of Ephesus. And all the books that were, all the letters that were written to that church, you would almost have to do it from backwards to the front, because in the front it's a wonderful church talking about a loving people who cared for one another. And as time slowly went on, they fought over the dumbest of things. And they separated more and more till finally God had to say, You have lost your first love. And so the crime of the northern tribe isn't a crime that any of us wouldn't ever be thought guilty of. But God says, I can't let that crime go on. Because there are sins and there are horrible sins, but at the point where you've got the sin of you lost that ability to love one another, you're out of plumb. You're no longer straight. You can no longer be raised up. And you certainly are nobody I can associate my title with anymore. And that's the word Amos had to deliver this small country mouse, to the people in the big city. Amos spoke to people who had unrivaled economic success, the wealthiest nation at that time, and said, you should have been thankful, but instead you're materialistic. Amos spoke to people with the strongest military, and it should have made them responsible, but they became arrogant. Angus, Amos spoke to people who were genuinely proud of their religious heritage, a people who understood that God set them apart as something special, but somehow lost their historic connection to God and his word and couldn't figure out how to get it back, or maybe it wasn't convenient to get it back. Amos spoke to a people where religion had been made easy and convenient and politically correct, which will always leave you starving for something real. You see, I think the people measure themselves by their outward appearance, a life of prosperity, of a people who worship God faithfully every week at temple. I think if you were to ask somebody on, those, on the streets of Bethel, if they were faithful followers of God, they would answer, of course I am. If you wonder, just look how richly God has blessed me and my family. Their personal circumstances and those of the standing nation became their litmus test for favor with God. Well, what about beating down the poor? What about taking advantage of them in court? Again, it's legal. Maybe that person has done something that's caused that life to be the life they get. Maybe they didn't take care of good themselves. Maybe they're not close to God. Besides, what the rich were doing was technically within the law. Contrast that attitude with Jesus saying, whatever you do for the least of these, you are doing for me. And it's easy to see how they got off track. God says this focus of, if I look on myself and I look at how my life is, and that must mean my litmus test shows me that everything's great, I'm plumb. God says that isn't within my law or my plan. I created one nation set apart from the rest of the world. And if we fast forward to Jesus' time, Jesus in John 13 says, By this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Without that defining truth for Christianity, if we can't get to the point where we can say, People can say, boy, these people love one another. There's not a whole lot else that separates us from the rest. It has to start with that. 
And Amos in chapter 5 told the crowd in a line made famous by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., God wouldn't rest until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now there was another prophet, much more reluctant than this, more famous too by the name of Jonah. Jonah had a harder situation, at least at at face value. He had to go to a people who were far from God, who were away from God, and he had to tell them that God was going to destroy them. Now, what did they do in Jonah's case? They repented. So I would expect the people of God who go to Sunday school on a regular basis, these guys are going to get it faster than than the people in Jonah did, right? They're going to understand that, and they're going to be like, yep, thank you, Lord, for telling us. Well, let's continue on. It says, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising up a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah, the priest, says to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore, Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom now shouldn't he have said this is god's sanctuary in the temple of god how far off have we gotten in the situation where we say this is the king's sanctuary you don't have a place here with god's word if the king didn't approve god's word that's a big problem so uh basically this guy goes to the king and he says this guy is stirring up problems listen look at your approval rating see how high it's going It's not going to keep going up if we let him keep talking, okay? Look at how great the economy is. This guy may even talk some people to reuniting with the guys, with those hicks in the south. We can't do any of that. We're going to lose all this power. So he says to the king, it's going to be real problems if you let him keep talking. I find it interesting that there's a gap here where he tells them this is what Amos prophesied, and he's 100% accurate on that. He just leaves out the part where Amos explains why. He's prophesying it. What led to this moment? He's basically painting Amos as just some crazy person who's coming in trying to stir up disrupt uh, unrest, unruliness. And then he looks at Amos and he basically says, hey, fortune teller, why don't you go palm read somewhere else? All you're doing is causing problems with this this crazy talk that you've got going on. He tries to uh, downgrade, to denigrate uh, Amos, to the point where nobody's going to want to listen to him anyhow. Now, as I read and studied for this, the commentaries were pretty hard on Amaziah. They talked about all the ways that he, he was just so bad and everything else. I kind of relate to the guy. And I, I, I hate to admit it. Phil just laughed. He's like, yeah, you do. No. <laughs> a guy who's told, this is what you look like to God and holds up a mirror, I look at that guy and go, no, the mirror's distorted. That's not what I look like. I look pretty good. You know, there, there, was, a, there was a comic a while back. It showed uh, how, how, like, and this is a little bit sexist, sorry, but how women see themselves in the mirror and they see all their flaws and everything else. And like how a guy like me sees himself in the mirror and I look at pretty good. And I'm like, well, that's how I see myself in the mirror. I don't understand, you know. I couldn't figure out how my head burns now at the lake and it didn't used to burn, but that's got nothing to do with nothing, you know. I'm often told that God will often use areas of my life that I'm, I'm oblivious to, that I do, uh, by bringing in people who don't know me very well to speak those truths. And that hurts, because what that tells me is the people that are closest to me are afraid to tell me. It's not that they don't see it. 
Because when I'm told it, I, sometimes I'll go to them and I'll say, you wouldn't believe the craziest thing this guy just said about me. And then that's when they stop making eye contact. Several years ago, uh, actually 20 years ago now, speaking of age, um, I was working at a place and uh, there were, I left something of value out on my desk. And uh, as was his job, the security guard basically saw it, picked it up and left a label there basically saying, you've got to come when we're open and pick this up because we've had thefts and we don't want that to happen anymore. Well, I was mad. I needed what he took. Wasn't his right to take it. And I started spouting off to everybody. And, I, and someone said, well, he's just doing his job. And I said, how much does that guy even make an hour? Basically saying, he's got no right to tell me what to do. I make more money than he does an hour. I have a better authority than he does. I have a better job than he does. And then there was Louis behind me who started singing, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. And then there was the atheist to my right said, what's the name of that church you go to again? And so then I told someone about it at lunch who was a believer, and they're looking at me on horror. I'm like, I know, right? With the things they said, they're like, no, the things you said. Where in your mind would you think how much a man makes an hour dictates his worth? I don't know. Right here, I guess, and, and here, you know. What I did in the beginning was I really just tried to curtail that talk. But then God really started to reveal to me how that was a value I had and a value I held for a number of years after that incident. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to face that. It's hard to face that because you don't want to admit it. And you don't want to admit it because on the outside it's not happening. And then you see the way you treat others. Or you see the assumptions you make when you meet somebody else. And you say, okay, maybe God is working on something here. So I relate to Amaziah. Because we get blinders in those areas of life God really needs to do work on. Those walls look plumb to us. And God says, no, a few of those need to be torn down. Few of these know to come down sooner rather than later if you're really going to continue to grow. And those moments where that has happened to me, it's, it's been unbelievable. It's, it's, it hurts. I do get angry. Sometimes I yell. And then after I hear it by the second or third guy, or I hear a person saying, well, you better listen to that because when people tell me that stuff, they're usually not wrong. That's when God can really start to work in my heart. And so... You really just have to get to the point where you're listening. So Amaziah, or Amos says back to Amaziah, listen, I was minding my own business. I was running a farm when God called me to come warn you. Amos basically says, don't lump me in with prophets or pastors. I know, I agree. No. Don't lump me in with those guys. That's a, that's a, that's a bad thing to do. And so he's basically saying to him, I didn't come here because I wanted to make money. I didn't come here because I wanted fame and fortune. I came because God sent me. And in fact, we really don't see where he's prophesying to too many people except for those leaders anyhow. And so he's not building it up like that. I think there's something else about Amos that Amaziah doesn't realize, and I think it's important, and that's that Amos was on their side. In other words, he was on the side of the people of God. He really wanted them to get this. You see, this is the third vision God gave Amos. In the first vision, God says, I'm wiping them out. I'm bringing locusts. Locusts are going to come through. They are going to wipe out the crops. They're going to starve. They're going to scatter to the world. The whole thing's going to fall apart. I'm wiping them out. And Amos drops to his knees and begs God and says, please forgive them. The punishment you're going to give them is just too much to bear. Forgive these people, Lord. And so God relents. 
And Amos continues around the city and continues to prophesy. And God isn't seeing where they're transforming or changing. And so God comes back and says, okay, I won't do locusts, but I'm going to do fire. I'm going to burn this city to the ground. Every, it, it won't even exist on a map by the time I'm done with this city. And Amos again goes back and says, God, I know they're thick-headed. You put me here, I'm living with them. I, I, sometimes I can't take them either. Well, that's, Moses said that more than Amos said that. I'm paraphrasing there. But he says, but please forgive them. Your punishment is too strong. And so where you had Jonah prophesying against the, uh, about what God was going to do to people and saying, I can't wait till God does you in, you had Amos prophesying to a group of people and saying, God, I love these people. Don't do it. He was on their side. You see, when Amos comes and gives these visions, he's coming from a place of love. He's coming from a place of compassion. And there are so many lessons in that one moment, but I'm going to just hit on two. First, when you and I see the injustice of this world, some injustices performed by those claiming to be Christian, are we moved to compassion for both sides? Or do we pick one side over the other? Because I think Satan has many forms of attack. Satan will use the oppressor to attack the oppressed. That one's obvious. But something's going on in the life of that oppressor that makes him think that that's where the real power in life resides. That the power doesn't exist in love, the power exists in might. And so are we praying for both sides? Do we have love and compassion for both sides? And I'll even tell you, it's okay if you say no. Be honest with yourself. Look at the way you've looked at, at, at divisive situations in, in your life, divisive situations in your neighborhood, divisive situations in the world. How did you feel about the side you didn't agree with? And it's okay to say, not great, if you're going to say, God, tear down that wall and let's build a new one. I want the wall to be plumb. I want the wall to be straight. Second, and I think this is important as well, God is still a God of justice. I have to admit, I have a hard time with the God of judgment. I like the God of the New Testament. Forgive 70 times 77 times 7 times 7 times 77 7. I, that's the number of forgivenesses I need every moment of my life. Those are, those are good things, you know. And I always saw the God of the Old Testament saying, well, until the Messiah comes, there's only one way to speak to you people and, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, you know, spare the rod, spoil the nation, I guess, you know. And I always looked at it as a negative thing. But if you really dig into judgments throughout the Bible, they don't come after the first warning. They come after several. And if you really look at the judgments in the Bible, not judging them isn't going to end up any better for them than the other side. They will destroy themselves, or they'll destroy a lot of people on the way to destroying themselves. And God says again, I cannot be associated with that. So when we see judgments, instead of picking on the... God of justice, maybe we should start to look and say, what led to this moment anyhow? And we're going to find disobedience somewhere in the path and not just a little bit. So the question I have for you and me this morning, for all of us collectively, is how do we measure up against God's plumb line? By this you will be known that you, it will be known that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Is this my plumb line? Or did I create my own? How do I find God's plumb line? First, you've got to spend time in his word, don't you? Because if you're going to have any knowledge of what the right and wrong is, you've got to get into God's word. 
We spoke several weeks ago about Mosaic Law versus the laws that came after the Mosaic Law and said if you just stuck to the Mosaic Law, they would have been in really good shape. When Nehemiah rebuilds the temple, one of the first things they do is open up the law and the book of worship. Found out they were doing it wrong, but they wouldn't have known if they didn't open the word. So you've got to get in the word. The second area that has to closely tie to that is prayer. Because when I'm praying, and I'm praying for the person I have something against, and I'm praying for the person I care for, and I'm praying for the guy at work, and I'm praying for the kids at teen night, and I'm praying for the people I come into contact every day, I look at them differently. I want to gossip about them less. I want to be on their side more. I just look at them differently, and that's not me. That's God. So you have to get into prayer. I would actually suggest you take the, the last couple of weeks that, that Andy has been preaching on prayer and talk to Jeff about how you get copies of those. Listen to those again. Those were great passages of Scripture, and he did a great job explaining about how the foundation of all of this begins with prayer. But you see, the problem with the northern kingdom and, uh, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom and its people was they were praying, they were reading the Bible, they were doing it in an hour on Sunday or an hour on Saturday, and then they were not letting it affect or impact the rest of their lives. If you're going to pray and you're going to read the Bible, you're going to say, God, use this in my heart, transform me, and you're going to believe that he's going to. Now, Jesus used this plumb line, and he used it beautifully in the story of the Good Samaritan. And it was a story that everybody in that room could connect with. It had an obvious answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Remember, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, and he goes through and he explains all that. He's basically giving them the law. And then they said, who is my neighbor? And he talks about the man who was down and out, who had the problem, and the Samaritan who helped him. And it was obvious that the Samaritan, the one who should have been the outcast, was actually the neighbor. It's not enough, though, that everybody knows, that everybody understands. Knowing and understanding are nothing if nobody wants to do what it takes to live out the life of the Good Samaritan. Where does my energy, where does my commitment go? Am I focused on the well-being of victims of oppression and violence in the community to neighbors who are rejected? Or have we simply noticed it, thought, oh, that's terrible. Maybe uh, donated a little bit of money and then moved on with my life. From what I read in Amos and what I see throughout the Bible, it's pretty clear that there's actually a cost for me to live the Samaritan life, and that's okay. There's a cost of my time. There's a cost of my energy. There's a cost of my resources. And that's what God is trying to draw us all into. Try living out the life of the Samaritan or the life that Amos is talking about for even an hour. What would the world be like if we consistently and continually focused on the needs of the victims of this world and then tried to bring together everything we had to do something about it? Maybe you say, that's too big. I can't think that big. Bring it down to your neighborhood. Bring it down to kids who are going to be coming twice a week in recess. How do I notice and recognize the needs in their lives? And what is God calling me to do for those where the oppressor is taking advantage of the oppressed? Israel was not living as a light of the nations, the one job God created them for. And if we don't live out and care for creation, care for our neighbor, and make that secondary to how my life is going, we're not doing a great job of living it out either. Amos ends this book with hope. He basically says, you are going to go through this destruction. You are not getting out of this. But if you will turn from all of the garbage and turn towards loving God and loving others ahead of loving yourself, 
God will one day return and walk through and walk among you. And that's a challenge for all of us. We need to be at the point in life where we can say, I'm looking out for the guy in front of me more than I'm looking out for myself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Thank you for being a God who puts the needs of so many in front of your own, in front of your will sometimes. And thank you that your good and perfect will is what can tear us away from the problems that we sometimes create. Break our hearts, Lord, for those that are victims in life. Break our hearts for those that, whether on their own accord or whether because of the situation they find themselves in, are just down. Help people to come in our lives and go, yeah, I, I know that guy. He's loving, he's caring. He'd, he'd give you the shirt off his back. And let it be because they've seen it, they've witnessed it, or they've experienced it from us. Bless these people and give us a wonderful week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.